0: I want to challenge you, commit it to memory. Uh, You'll be a richer Christian if you do. 23 weeks, this is 23 right here, where we've talked about the Apostles' Creed, which really became a long conversation about what you believe. Uh, We'll do our best to try to package this in some way, maybe put it in some digital format. Many of you have said, I need to send this to a loved one, I need to send this to the Philippines, I need to send this somewhere. Uh, and uh, Miss Jessie will work on a way to package that on an SD card or a flash drive, and we'll talk to you about that in, in the coming days. For this morning, let's wrap the series. I need to cover three lines, the last three lines of the Creed. I think this is one of the more important sermons in the Creed. And so I'm going to ask you to really try to grasp, have got to cover a lot of ground, but I want you to really focus on on what's being said this morning. Let me begin right here. From the pastor's perspective, I just want to say to Cornerstone how proud I am of you as a church family. Uh, You are a very unique congregation, and uh, I I just don't know how to love on you verbally enough and tell you how proud I am. You've confronted incredibly difficult issues of this modern generation. You guys collectively have been champions (coughs) for... Church reforms that have been way, way overdue, long needed for decades, and our spiritual parents were not willing to address them. They weren't ready for the reform, and you guys have come together as a church, and that takes courage. And I want you to know. Can you soften my lights in my eyes, just just a whisker? And I want you to know how proud I am of your courage and the strength of your faith. Uh, How proud I am of you for listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, and being guided by the Spirit of God. Incredibly important what you guys have done really in the last five or or ten years here. When the church of Jesus has been confronted with real life challenges. Challenges that are presented to us from governments, by cultures, uh, by changing societies, by warfare... By, by pestilence, by pandemic, when the church has been confronted with real-life challenges, the church historically has used those moments to come together as a church, ask difficult questions, uh, search, pray, seek the guidance of God, and make the reforms where necessary to the situations they were facing. Uh, Sometimes it wasn't a reform that was needed. Sometimes uh, what these crisis moments led the church to do was just come together and go on the record. In other words, sometimes the church just needs to go on the record and state an official possession about, here's where we stand on, fill in the blank, okay? And that's important for a church to do because really those are the issues you're going to be asked a lot as a Christian. People are going to ask you at work. So, hey, you're a Christian. You go to church. What do you, where do you stand on? And it's going to be a social issue. It's going to be a current issue. It's going to be something that's happening. It's going to be about vaccination. It's going to be about homosexual marriage. It's going to be about, uh, you know, the government situation. It's going to be, it's going to be about stuff like that that people are asking you difficult questions about. And this morning, this is why knowing your history is so important. And I'll give you a quick history lesson this morning, and I trust it will not bore you in any way. But the ancient church faced a crisis that led the church to come together and start asking hard questions. Just exactly what I have described. And the church began to ask these questions in the early 300s, 4th century. The crisis that happened led the church to say, well, what sins can be forgiven? The church began to ask, well, what happens if I sin as a Christian? I'm already saved, but now I sin. Now, what happens in my life? It led the church to ask this question. What happens if I deny my faith or one of my children deny their faith, but later I or my loved one tries to come back into the church and come to Christ in repentance? Now, what happens to such situation? The church began to ask, what happens if I leave the church? (laughs) <laughs> but later I come to myself and I say, you know what, I made a mistake, I want to come back to the church. Listen, I, I, I just rejoice. I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody this morning. But there's a lot of people in this room who left the church and came back. And the church needs to leave the door open, by the way. That is our official stance here. Because many of your children are going to leave the church. We won't leave the door open because they're going to come back. That's our prayer, right? They're going to come back into the church. <coughs> sooner rather than later but certainly when you start getting married and having kids some things begin to change in your life and it becomes a catalyst for holy spirit to really work on you so anyway the church was in one of these crisis moments in the fourth century now let's go back in our minds because we're studying the apostles creed and i i've mentioned before before this series even that the ancient church had short creeds the church began developing creeds quickly not everyone could read and they memorized little rhyming things to help them convey truth and memorize truth. And they were memorizing Scripture, of course, what Scripture they had, which in those days was, was the Old Testament. And those short creeds were developed within the very first generation of Christians. In other words, the people Jesus discipled, let's call them the, the disciples and apostles, Paul's in that group. Those people began to develop creeds even early on, but they were very... Uh, short and pithy creeds. They were ways to communicate truth. They were not, like we've been studying, a hundred plus word comprehensive statement. They were not comprehensive statements of faith like that. They just articulated one little truth of Christianity or the central truth of Christianity. And such is an example which I usually talk about at Easter time uh, when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians about the centrality of the gospel because they're sidetracked onto 9,000 different things. And he keeps pulling them back and saying, no, the gospel is that thing that is central to our, our beliefs. And Paul gave them, remember, a short, pithy kind of creed there in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the grave and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the grave and was seen. And that is the story that he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. But you can condense it to a pithy creed in just a little sentence like that. And the people would memorize that in the church. And when people would say, well, what do you believe? Here's what we believe. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the grave and was seen. And we are part of those eyewitnesses. Or maybe I'm not an eyewitness, but come to church Sunday and introduce you to some of these people who were eyewitnesses. That's what it looked like. little short pithy creeds but they weren't comprehensive so what happened is when people were getting baptized they decided to develop a creed so that people who were about to be publicly baptized could articulate a short summary of what their confession was and you already know it's a trinitarian confession i'll talk about that again in a minute and that first creed that first baptismal creed used that way was called the old roman creed Okay, you haven't heard of it. It's good. It's fine. What's important is that the Old Roman Creed was then developed a little more. They added a little more meat onto the skeleton there and it turned into the Apostles' Creed. Now, the early editions of the Apostles' Creed uh, track along with a lot of what I have taught you already. It's been modified very slightly over time and we're going to talk about one of those modifications this morning. In the Old version of the Apostles' Creed. Very ancient. The early edition spoke about the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the resurrection of the dead. In the old Apostles' Creed, there was not the line that we're going to study today, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins. It was not in that line. So one of the later modifications that happened in the 300s was that the church hit a crisis moment and the church came together and said we need to modify the creed. And by the way, change is good when it happens this way. When we see a change needs to be made because of a changing circumstance in culture or our life or to help our children or to help the next generation of Christians, that's when change is a positive thing. And we need to make those changes to set up the next generation to have clarity to have a stronger faith than we had. So these church fathers came together and they said we need to add a line to the creed. And the line they decided to add to the creed was the line we're about to study, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, when I started this sermon series and I read the whole thing many times, started memorizing it, started looking at it, I thought this line was the most redundant non-necessary line in the creed duh (laughs) we are christians of course we believe in the forgiveness of sins right does that even have to be said that's like saying yes i believe we all need to inhale you know oxygen uh yeah our hearts all need to beat it just seemed to me to be so obvious uh in the early days uh i didn't understand why this was even in the creed it was so obvious but the more I studied the creed, and the more I studied the versions of the creed, the light bulbs went off in my head, and I want to share that story with you this morning. Sometimes things that are seem so obvious are not always so obvious to everyone. And don't be afraid to state the obvious. Sometimes is what I'm saying. Especially if you're leading disciples and making disciples, let's be clear. Let's go slow. Let's make sure we lay a good foundation. Things that are obvious to you may not be obvious to the person you're you're trying to disciple. Let me show you why they added this line. A very dramatic debate arose in the early church in the 4th century. Those 4th century Christians were in upheaval about the nature of sin and the nature of forgiveness of sins. You can say, well, these people must be really backslidden. It's not like that. These are the grandchildren of the apostles. These people are four generations removed from Jesus. Three generations removed from the Apostle. I mean, these are the grandkids of John and these guys. I mean, they are very close to the, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They're getting their information from just, you know, John taught me and I taught somebody and this is the generation we're dealing with. And so these people, though, were in a crisis moment because they were being persecuted for their faith by the Roman emperors. The Roman emperors saw Christianity spreading throughout the Roman Empire, which is the superpower of the day. And they are very, their ears are very tuned to movements within the empire. And when people start uniting around their faith... And that faith begins to spread like wildfire in the empire. And you try to kill them, and it only spreads faster when you try to kill them. It got the attention of the Roman emperors very quickly. And the Roman emperors were persecuting these people because they were scared of the Christian family because they were gaining such influence within the empire. The emperor was told that the Christians based their faith upon books upon the writings of the apostles. If I said it in a modern way, they, they based their faith on the Bible. Uh, the whole Bible wasn't quite what you've got right now, but the writings of the apostles and the writings of the prophets were being hand-copied and passed from <coughs> generation of Christian to generation of Christian, from church to church throughout the Roman Empire. And so, in February of 303 A.D. That's way back there. February of three 03 AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian ordered that the property of all Christians was to be seized. Now, this is the great persecution coming under Diocletian, 303 February. He ordered that the property, official edict, all property of Christians is to be seized. All of their books are to be burned. If you are a Christian, your civil rights are now revoked. All places of worship are to be destroyed. Christian leaders are to be imprisoned. Christian believers, just the rank and file Christians, are to be hunted if you can find them and bring them together and uh, we may put them all to death. We're going to see if we get them to sacrifice to the Roman idols and recant, renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the emperor Diocletian was so successful in this massive persecution in the Roman Empire against Christianity. That, I mean, he had killed so many Christians and so many pastors and burned so many writings. Some of you may think in your mind, well, why don't we have the original things? Why don't we have the original autograph, the original things that Paul wrote and John wrote? Here's why. Because they're being copied and those copies are being rounded up. By by the soldiers under the edict of Diocletian, and they're being burned. He was so successful in the persecution that he thought he had destroyed the Christian faith. They had a pile of ashes there in the Roman Forum from where they had burned the Bibles, <coughs> and uh, Diocletian commanded that they build a Roman column. And if you ever go to Rome, the Trajan's Column is still there. They build. Uh, A a column, an obelisk, but it's not square, it's rounded. A tall, pointed top, and it spirals all the way up, and all the way around it's engraved with writing. And it tells a story if you read it. Trajan's column is there today if you get to go to Rome to the Forum. And uh, you can go and, of course, you you can't read it because it's not in English. But what it says, as you read it, this is the column that was erected by the emperor Trajan when he in celebration of conquering ancient Dacia, which is Romania, blah, 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 blah. Well, he said, I want you over the ashes of those burned Bibles, I want you to erect a column in the name of the emperor Diocletian. And they chiseled into the column this inscription, Extinto Nomine Christianorum. I think you could figure that out if I didn't translate it. Extinct is the name Christian. They made a plaque and it said on that plaque, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the gods has been restored. Now he was pretty successful in burning Bibles and killing Christians and the Christian leaders and their followers were imprisoned They were tortured to death if they refused to sacrifice to the pagan idols of Rome. And there were many martyrs who gave their lives. Many of your brothers and sisters refusing to yield to the emperor Diocletian. But there were many more, Listen to what I'm saying, there were many more frightened and terrified Christians who made the sacrifices to the Roman idols and were released from custody. Diocletian actually made the Christians gather together where they would have a pagan altar to burn to the pagan sacrifices where you could renounce your faith in Christ and you could you could uh, sacrifice and he made it easy for the Christians. He said, just everybody come out into the square in mass and we'll have a a, a priest come up here. Pagan priest make the make the uh, sacrifice and you can all just bow down together and in mass. There won't be as much pressure as doing it individually. And, And massive groups of professing Christians offered sacrifices to idols and renounced their faith in Christ. And in renouncing their faith in Christ, they renounced their baptisms as well. So, let me just fast forward the story. This is crazy, right? So those people escaped. Some Christians who were being hunted had never been captured yet. Some pastors who were, wouldn't compromise had never been captured yet. Some were in hiding. Some had run to the hills. Uh, but within a few years, they, they, I don't know the exact number, but it's between 10 and 20 years, very quickly, uh, within a few years, Diocletian died. And the emperor that came in behind him, the new emperor Constantine, which is the name you'll remember, Constantine actually embraced Christianity. Now, can you imagine the emotional swing? You're being hunted for being a Christian. There's another, not election, but assassination. There's a, there's a turnover in emperor. One emperor dies. Another emperor comes in. It's almost the whipsaw effect we've got in America right now. You know, just, just the, the political pendulum is swinging just, just this and this and this. And, and what's happening with these guys is diocletian says all christians are to be murdered constantine comes in says i'm going to embrace christianity as a matter of fact here's what constantine did now remember diocletian a few years ago said they're extinct on not nominate christian norm there are no christians left the bible's burned it's gone i've extinguished christianity forever constantine comes in embraces christianity and constantine says dang it i wish i had a copy of a bible does anybody know where we could find a copy of a Bible? Diocletian burned them all. And so he put a royal edict out to the Roman Empire, <clears throat> emanating from Rome. And he said, can anybody find a copy of a Bible? Well, sure. You think the Christians gave up all their Bibles? The ones that were in hiding? The historical record says that Constantine offered a sizable reward for anyone who could produce a copy of, the, of whatever writings they had up to that point within a few hours there were 50 copies of the bible delivered to the palace how cool is that constantine commissioned a group of scribes to replicate those bibles at government expense you talk about a swing in policy At government expense, Constantine said, I want a copy of the New Testament or the copy of the Bible put into every church in the Roman Empire and I'm going to commission it out of taxpayer funds. You talk about a swing in policy. Now, I digress because it's a fascinating story, but let me get back now to the dilemma that the church found herself in. Are you ready? Quite predictably now, After Constantine came to power and embraced Christianity, all of those believers who had renounced their faith in Jesus Christ came right back into the church as if nothing had happened. Anybody feel the intention coming? Those who didn't renounce their faith in Christ labeled them as, quote unquote, the traitors. So now we're having church on Sunday morning, and I'm looking at the people who risked their lives, who maybe had a husband killed, had a daughter killed, had a brother killed, had somebody tortured to death, and you're looking at a group of people who sacrificed the idols, and then when the persecution's over, walk back in as if nothing had ever happened. And the people who held firm looked at him and said, can you imagine the tension on a Sunday morning? they're looking over at their church friends who abandoned them and saying, you're traitors. You're traitors to the church. You're traitors to Jesus Christ. And this real-life historical situation created a crisis in the ancient church in the early 300s. And you can just imagine how tense it would be if you had lost one of your family members And your best church friend is sitting over there with all of his family intact because they compromised and offered sacrifices to idols. And they're like, hey, let's get together, let's go to Luby's after church on Sunday. And you're just like, traitor. My family members laid down their life for the cause of Christ, and you, you didn't. Now, here's the crisis the church faced. See, we think in our modern generations, we're the only ones that ever face crises with our social dilemmas that we have about marriage and who can be married and about homosexuality and about abortion and about politics and about immigration and about this, that, and the other. And we think, well, the church has never faced this. You got to be kidding. They face worse than this. And they found a way forward. And that's what I want to show you this morning. What should, here was the question they began to ask. Sit in their sandals for just a minute, okay? They began to ask, what should the church do with those who renounce their faith and their baptism? Can they be accepted back into the church? Is there a public ceremony for how? I mean, do we need to make them crawl across the hot coals or broken glass or, I mean, what do we need? Is there a public ceremony? For how we are to let them back into the church? Do they just need to say the creed again and be rebaptized? Uh, 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 or should they be permanently removed from the church community since they didn't hold fast to their faith? It gets even worse. Even more awkward than that, there was the question of what to do with some of the pastors who had sacrificed to idols in order to save their lives or their wives. Or their children. Listen, some of you are judging these people harshly. If Diocletian has a sword to your baby, if Diocletian has his soldiers with a sword, the tip of it right there at your wife's throat, and he says, you bow to idols or I'm going to take your wife's head off. See, you've never faced anything quite like this. And so, some people gave their lives... Some people offered to to sacrifice to idols and maybe in their hearts said, I don't mean it, but I've got to do it to save my baby girl, or I've got to do it to save my husband, or I've got to do it to save my wife. Even more awkward was the fact that several of the pastors sacrificed to idols. What do we do with those pastors who sacrificed to idols? Have they invalidated their faith? If they've invalidated their faith, has their ministry been invalid all along? That's a big question. Listen, I can bring this up to modern context. If a pastor has a moral failure in 2022, has his whole ministry been a failure? This is the type of question they're asking right now. If the pastor who baptizes you had a failure, does that mean that your baptism is invalid also? Oh, this thing gets sticky. This thing is a hairball you can't imagine. If the pastor sacrificed the idols or to save his family or his life, and he's the one who baptized us, well, what does that mean about us? Is our faith invalid? Is our baptism invalid? Is all what he told us was true no longer true? Do I need to be re-baptized by someone who didn't bow to idols? Do I need to be rebaptized by someone who was not among the group labeled as the traitors? And these difficult questions caused the church to get on her knees and study and diligently pray for the wisdom of God and the leading of Holy Spirit. They had to just seek God's wisdom on what to do with the issues of the traitors. And what it did is it flushed out some of the most serious, deepest, basic questions of Christianity That became the focus of how to answer the question. Here are some of the questions that they begin to ask. What really makes you a follower of Jesus Christ? Now don't answer out loud, but maybe you have an answer in your heart to this question this morning. This is what they're trying to figure out. They begin to ask the questions, what can you do if you've strayed from the faith? What is the plan? What is the path back? Is there a path back? Is it hopeless? Do I just go on now because I've blown it and I can never be recovered? The church began to ask, is the Christian church a community of the pure? Only. In other words, only the people who haven't messed up need to be here. The people who've messed up, you guys need to move on. That was a profound question for the church in three o whatever bc They began to ask questions like, can... Struggling, weak, and uncertain souls also find their place in the church? Is the church just for these elite, spiritual, never-mess-up elitists? Or can we coexist side-by-side with people who are not mistake-free? And it was this crisis of the 4th century church that led them to start answering these profound questions Christian leaders begin to teach their congregations that the church includes everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as their Savior and receives baptism. That's what they begin to teach. They begin to teach their congregations, early 300s, that the church is not only for the pure and the spiritually successful, but the church is also for the failures of discipleship. Listen, there are people we've tried to disciple here for 10 years. And we've started and they've quit and we've started and they've quit and we've started and they've quit and we've started and they've quit. And and they've quit. And there are people who have been through six different discipleship leaders, seven maybe. You say, what do we do? If they showed up today and said, I'm going to try again, we'd hook them right back up. Do you see what's happening? They begin to teach their church that church is just not for the spiritually successful It's also for the failures of discipleship, which means that the church is also for those who have failed dramatically and who have failed in a public way. There is no sinful failure that excludes you from the grace of God. I like that. Because eventually you and I are going to be one of those failures. So I like this teaching. It resonates in my heart. They argued in the early 300s in the church, that when backslidden believers return to their faith, they do not need to be rebaptized. They simply need to show through a changed lifestyle that they are taking their faith, their confession, and their baptism seriously now. That's all they need to do. They concluded, and rightfully so, that once the forgiveness of sins has taken place, It is a once for all transaction with God based in the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I agree with their assessment. These conclusions were so strongly held by early Christianity that they decided to make it uniform, codified, creedified, whatever you want to say, state an official position on the record. And this crisis calls the church to take the Apostles' Creed and say, we must now add a line into the Apostles' Creed that says everything that I've just articulated to you, that the New Testament church believes in the forgiveness of sins. Now I want to ask you, because this is a creed that says, I believe, I believe, I believe. Let me ask you a personal question this morning. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? Yeah, this is a good part of the sermon where you probably want to talk back a little bit to me so you don't, you know, slow me down a little bit. Otherwise, I'll get bogged down right here. Okay, so now I expected that. You believe in the forgiveness of sins. So I want to ask the question a different way to this congregation because I think this is pivotal for you right now where you live. Here's the question I want to ask you. What sins do you believe can be forgiven? But that's not the way we act. So let me see if I get this right. According to the teaching of the Bible, you folks at Cornerstone believe that all sins can be forgiven. Let's want to be sure we got it right. That's what we believe. You believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection from the dead has the saving power to forgive all sins. Okay, let me ask you. Past sins? Present sins? Future sins? Stealing? Lying? How about sexual sins? Because the church has acted like that category is not forgivable. So sexual sins can be forgiven too by the blood of Christ. Okay, I just want to be on the record. This is an on the record sermon right now. How about sacrificing to Roman idols after you were saved and baptized? Can that be forgiven? Do you see the crisis of the 4th century church? And that was their conclusion as well. Those sins too. Let me give you another one. That was 4th century How about denying your faith in order to save your children from death? Do you believe that can be forgiven? Yeah. And that was also the conclusion of the early Christian church. And the implications of putting this line in the creed for 2,000 years of Christianity to follow this teaching is the 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 implications are profound, are monumental for the modern church. Because they discovered what we all know in our hearts to be true, a church that believes in the forgiveness of sins can never be a church of the pure. Now, you're pure in the sense that Jesus has forgiven your sins, but you understand what I'm saying. A church that believes in the forgiveness of sins See, I constantly hear the people of our old tradition saying, well, if we do this, then that affects the purity of the church. The purity of the church has been <laughs> a non-issue for 2,000 years. These pastors sacrificed the idols to save their kids from being put to the sword, and the church forgave them and restored congregants, clergy, the whole lot. And they said there are no traitors and not traitors. There are only people who are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is not a your sin versus my sin, an us versus them. Ladies and gentlemen, the body of Christ, there's only us, not us and them. There's only we who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the implications for the church Or that the church must always be a community that is patient and understanding towards the timid and the doubtful. The church must always be gracious and gentle with youthful Christians who are growing in their faith. And if this has not been your church experience up till now, then all I want to say to you is welcome home. Welcome to a church that holds the ancient position. We are glad that God led you to Cornerstone. And we will do our best to treat you with with patience and with respect, with understanding. We'll be gracious and gentle with you as you are maturing in your faith and you are coming to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to the covenant members, the core, the covenant members of Cornerstone, whenever a judgmental and elitist spirit rises in your heart, I want you to quickly remember this line in the Creed and make your confession to yourself and to your God and say to yourself, Self, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to put this on the screen because I want you to learn to say this to yourself and to say this to God. Just say this with me. I believe in the forgiveness... Of sin, One more time. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And here's how it plays out practically in your life. Someone comes to you and says, hey, did you see what our church member did? You know what your answer is? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. When your spouse comes to you and says, honey, I need to talk to you about what I did, you need to learn to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. When your teenagers come to you and say, Dad, Mom, I need to talk to you about something I did that wasn't right, you need to learn then to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I get emails from people, Hey, did you see what one of our church members posted? Here's my response. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Did you hear what so-and-so said? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Did you know whose bed somebody was sleeping in? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you know what mistake someone made? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Do you know those people who are recovering in our congregation and fell off the wagon last? I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now do you understand why the church put this in the creed? It became an essential teaching to the church to understand how to do body life together. See, we affirm this morning as a church... That we do not stand righteous before God in our own merits and on our own achievements. We stand righteous before God by the merits and the achievements of Jesus Christ. We have not earned our own goodness. We have been forgiven because of Jesus' goodness towards us. So as a church, we welcome both the spiritually strong and the spiritually weak at Cornerstone. We believe that if you are the spiritually strong, uh, then, listen, get in here and help us make disciples and, and invest in the spiritually weak. If you're the spiritually weak, listen, we're going to be firm with you, but we're going to be patient with you and loving with you. And when you're ready, we're going to come alongside you and take you from being the spiritually weak to being the spiritually strong. And we will raise you up to not only be strong Christians, but to be leaders in the church of jesus christ boy i wish i had hours just to talk to you about this and i don't i have two lines and i got to do them in five minutes here we go we believe in the resurrection of the body now i want to say to you there's a twist to this it's both corporate and individual and since the bible affirms the goodness of god's creation Since the Bible affirms the goodness of God's material world in which you live, the creed from beginning to end also affirms the goodness of the material creation. Now there's not a line in the creed that says we believe the creation is good, but there are lines in the creed that support this thesis because... You have one, one of two camps to be in this morning. You either believe the creation is God's beautiful creation and it's good and people are good and your body is good and it all should be taken care of in a good way that we were put here to take care of planet earth or you believe Platonism and the ancient philosophies, the Greek philosophies and the Gnostics who believe that the material world was bad and as soon as you could get out of this body and fly away to heaven and live forever. Which is not a teaching of the Bible by the way. And so you're, you're at tension between two rival philosophies here. And the creed is affirming the goodness of creation. And I'm going to show you how it does it. Here's how it does it. The creed begins by confessing, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. The creed begins by affirming that it is God that created the material world. The creed speaks of Jesus as the Redeemer of God's creation. The humans are not foreign to God. They are not strange to God. They are loved by God. God wants a people. He made a people in His own image and in His own likeness. And He filled them with His Spirit. We are His people. And we are loved with such intensity that God sent His only Son to redeem us and this wonderful material world. The second section of the creed is about Jesus Christ and it confesses that God sent his son and he actually became a part of human nature itself. He actually became a part of the material world by taking on a body of flesh. The ancient Gnostics, the rival philosophies that see the material world as bad, also see the body of a woman as a very unclean and abhorrent thing. It's throughout the writings of the ancient Greek philosophers. Believers are in a totally different camp. Believers view the womb of a woman as the sacred venue for the most divine act of love the world has ever known. We believe that through the month of December this is really where all our attention is going to be focused on the redemption of God's creation which began with a Holy Spirit miracle safely tucked inside the womb of Mary. We don't see the a woman is unclean because God didn't see a woman as unclean. God said, Gabriel, go talk to Mary and say this to her. Hail thou that are highly favored. Blessed art thou among women. God sees you. He's chosen you. You are special to God. Your womb is sacred to God. And if you're willing to be used of God, He's going to use your material body to do a miracle of redemption for planet Earth. For from you, the Son of God is going to be born. Well, praise God. He's got a whole different view about the material world. My point is simply this. I grew up in a tradition that was really down on the material world. My views have swung completely around. And here's why. My point is Jesus suffered in the flesh. Jesus is crucified in the flesh. Jesus is buried in the flesh. Jesus is raised again in the glory of the resurrection in resurrected flesh. He's very familiar with humanity. The third part of the creed moves to the Holy Spirit. The third part of the creed confesses that God's Spirit is present in this material world and the Holy Spirit is indwelling every believer and transforming us to be like Jesus Christ. When Genesis began, the Spirit was hovering over creation. Now we're reading something completely different in the New Testament. The Spirit is not hovering over creation separate from material creation. Now, Holy Spirit is indwelling the material creation. Namely, you and I as living temples of Almighty God. Let me say it another way. The Holy Spirit has befriended the body. He has inhabited the body. He has made a dwelling with us. And because we have the Spirit right now, It is the guarantee, I preached this last week, that you will share the resurrection in the future. Origen was a a church father, and he had some very interesting ideas way, way back there again in the early B.C.s. And and Origen had a very famous sermon where he preached about this topic. Uh, uh, he, He spoke about the creed, And he said, you notice that the creed does not say we believe in the resurrection of our bodies. Instead, the creed says we believe in the resurrection of the body, singular. He posited in his sermon something very interesting. He posited that perhaps what is raised on the day of resurrection is not merely our individual bodies, but collectively the body of Christ, which is composed of individuals. Very interesting thought. Paul speaks of Christ as the head of the body who has already been raised and seated in heavenly places. And because the head lives, you're going to live also already. He's already talking in this language. And now on the resurrection day, the body will follow in resurrection. And that's very uh, in keeping with Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. If you're familiar with that vision, all of these bones come together and form an army of a bunch of, uh, maybe thousands of different individuals. But what the vision's interpretation is, is not about the individuals. The, the interpretation of Ezekiel's vision is that will God will raise up one new people of God. The vision is about the collective factor, not the individual factor. That God is collectively raising a new people to be His people. I don't think we consider often enough our neighbor. I think too often when we're thinking about salvation and resurrection and forgiveness, we just think of in terms of this is what I get out. I get forgiveness. I get resurrection. I get eternal. I've, I get a future home. I get. And we don't realize that it's much bigger than us. Maybe you've never considered this morning that Christian hope is not just individual hope. It's much bigger than individual hope for myself. It's social hope. It's hope for the universe. It's hope for the planet. It's hope for all humanity. It's hope for bigger than just me. Uh, I see something similar to this in the book of Hebrews where it very much appears that Christ is waiting for the whole human body of believers to be raised together to the point that even the Old Testament saints are not yet what they want to be because they're waiting on you and I. I read this from Hebrews 11.39 talking about the heroes of the Old Testament. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what they had been promised since God planned something better for us so that only together, one body, only together would they be made perfect with us. That's a very, that's where Origen got the idea. He's saying, you know what, in the resurrection, yes, you're going to get a resurrection, but it's bigger than that. The whole body of Christ is being resurrected. And it's God's intention to bring forth one single body of believers redeemed by the blood of Christ, raised to new life. The joy of the life to come depends somewhat on each one of us. We're still leading people to Christ like Roshana, week by week. Why? Part of the body of Christ. She's going to be raised with us. And when the whole body is ready, He's going to raise us together. Think of it this way. The party is on hold until the whole body's ready to be resurrected. That's the way you should think of it. One thing we're certain about is that Jesus loves all of humanity. And whatever life looks like in the resurrection, it will be a life based on love. For each of us, your future life will be filled and based in love. One last thought and let me close it. The last line of the creed says, we believe in life everlasting. Very beautiful language, but I want to just, I don't know what I want to do. Just listen. The final phrase of the creed is that we believe in life everlasting. And here's a case that now the creed was not written in English. The creed is written in the languages of Europe and then got translated into English later. Anything that's translated is difficult, okay? There's no such thing as word-for-word translation. Sometimes you have to use multiple words to say a word or vice versa. And I think this is a place in the creed where the translation into the English chose a good word, but maybe not the best word. Certainly we believe, I'm affirming this, we believe in life everlasting, But really, the emphasis of our belief is actually on eternal life. Life everlasting is about quantity. Can you see that? Life that lasts forever. It's about quantity. Listen, there's been lots of of stories written about people who live forever and it was terrible. And they tried to figure out how to get out of that. Jesus took the tree of life out of Eden because He did not want fallen human beings being able to live forever. And you can just think of some horrible people that have lived in history, you would not want them to live forever. Does that make sense? You could think about you and I, or loved ones who suffered with cancer and diseases, whose bodies were just being destroyed day by day. Do you want, them to, you want that suffering to linger for 10,000 years? God's way smarter than us, and He's got this all figured out. It's not just life everlasting. That's about quantity. The emphasis of our belief is actually on eternal life. Eternal life is about a quality of life. My point is, you cannot make life better just by increasing the quantity of life. What Jesus has promised us in the Bible is a, well, it's both. It's quantity and quality, but with more emphasis on the quality of life. It is the quality of eternal life that Jesus is offering to you when you enter into a relationship with Him. For Jesus is the very embodiment of eternal life. Life. I think I can do this really fast just by showing you the Scriptures. John's a master of this phrase. Let me show it to you. John 3.36 Whosoever believes in the Son, what do they have? John 5.24 Verily I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John identifies the Son of God, Jesus, as life. And he says about Jesus that all life is because of Him. And every living thing, whether it's a tree, a bird, the oceans, the, the, the plankton, or your bird dog, everything has life because of Jesus. Paul said all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made. John says the same thing. John 1, verse 3, Through Him <coughs> all things were made, without Him was made Nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of mankind. In the epistle, here's what John says. The life appeared. He's saying Jesus appeared. But look how he says it. The life. The life showed up. What life? Eternal life. The life appeared to us. And we have seen it and we testify. So we were proclaimed to you... The eternal life which was with the Father and has now appeared to us. John makes a synonym out of eternal life and Jesus. I think the truth is this. The closer we get to Jesus, the more you share the eternal quality of His life. This is why John in John chapter 17, verse 3 says, Now this is eternal life. That they know You, Father, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. So when we say the creed and we make our confession about we believe in life everlasting, there's nothing wrong with that. I just want you to know the difference between saying it two different ways. Life everlasting is good, means forever. You're gonna live forever. Eternal life means you're gonna live forever with the highest quality of life. It the life it has an eternal quality. And each day you are saved, each day you are walking in a relationship with Jesus, the indwelling Holy Spirit is drawing you further and further and further into your walk with Jesus Christ so that when Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. Ladies and gentlemen, living in a relationship with Jesus Christ is the best life you can live. Bottom line. You say, well, what happens in the future? Only gets better. Only gets better. You're connected to eternal life right now. And one day you'll understand everlasting life. You not only have the best quality of life, you'll have life unending. Man, it's hard to explain all of this because it's hard for our minds to fathom. I've read a lot of people trying to explain the resurrection and eternal life. It's hard to describe something like that. I read uh, some things uh, that will illustrate, but I don't know how close we can get to really understanding it. I was reading and they were this week talking about the nature of love. Let, Let me just read you something. When lovers embrace, they can experience a feeling that time has stopped. Maybe you've experienced this. When you're with someone you love and lovers embrace, you can experience that time has stopped and all that matters, the whole world is right there in that small room. The feelings that accompany love can alter your perception of space and time. The feelings of love can lift you to an eternal quality that you've never experienced. This is why so many poets and so many writers write about the eternal quality of love. And it's why so many write about the tragedy that accompanies love because you know it has to end at some point. Perhaps eternal life is something like the euphoria of love that lifts us beyond space and time, yet without the tragedy of knowing it ever has to end. Because it is both the eternal quality of life wrapped together with everlasting life. When Jesus tried to explain it to two of his best friends, here's what he said to them. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me shall never die. Let me ask you the question that Jesus asked those two girls. Do you believe this? It's your confession to confess. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. In this moment of response, I don't want to keep you but a minute or two, but in this moment of response, God has challenged your hearts this morning. I spent a lot of time this morning talking about how the church should deal with sin. Maybe that elitist spirit has risen in your heart at times where you can see everybody else's sin but your own Jesus talked about this many times this would be a great moment to say to your king God I want to ask for your forgiveness because I have not been championing the forgiveness of sins myself God help me to forgive others as you have forgiven me some of you have been saved a long time 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years or more and it's very easy to get judgmental and cynical when people who've only been saved a week or a month or a year or two haven't got the Christian life altogether yet. Why don't you ask God just to give you a tenderness in your heart towards those situations to be patient and loving and encouraging and kind. Maybe you've had some horrific church experience in your past. Maybe you've tried to get into church and tried to plug into a church, but every time you were disappointed because just cynical, judgmental spirits and I don't know, just whatever reason, it, it just wasn't right and you got frustrated and you felt kind of By the wayside, and you're trying again, you're here, maybe you're watching online, and you're trying to reconnect with the church. Listen, this is the time. We've stated very clearly what the church should be. We've realigned with the ancient creed that says we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Listen, we believe in the holy church, universal, Catholic, whatever word you want to say. We believe we are connected. You need to be plugged in because you also believe in the communion of saints. You must participate in the body of Christ. It is part of the Christian belief. Always has been. 2,000 years it has been. Listen, God's speaking to you about many different things this morning. As Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, I want you to talk back to Him right now. And at least acknowledge to Him that you hear His voice. And say to Him from your heart, Holy Spirit, I hear your voice. If I hear correctly, you're speaking to me about this and this. I hear you. I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to ask your forgiveness where I have crossed the line and I've sinned and I've had the wrong attitudes and the wrong actions. And God, I want a fresh start today. Just as those Christians in the fourth century got a fresh start in their church, I'm offering everyone a fresh start in your church this morning. There's no us and them. There's no discipleship failures and discipleship success. Just us. We're just here as a family this morning, unified together in the body of Christ, where neighbor is loving neighbor, neighbor is honoring neighbor, body member is lifting body member. God, we bow before you this morning, one body in Christ. Unified by the power of God and the Holy Spirit you have put in our hearts. God, thank you for what you've taught us in these 23 weeks. God, thank you for putting your arms around your people and pulling us up close and teaching us so many things we needed to know. God, may what we've learned here this morning about the crisis of the ancient church Lord may we take that to heart may we put in play what you led them to do and may it honor you may it honor you may this church honor you God thank you for all that you're going to send to us in the coming weeks of the holidays and the new year Lord the spiritually mature the spiritually infant Lord even the unsaved Lord send them We'll do our very best to love as you love them. Lord, thank you for changing our hearts even today. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.